So, you know, we have some news items this uh, this week. It's the uh, Oracle Open World slash Java One. And I forgot that Oracle is one of those companies, thankfully, one of the few who, like, starts their conference on Sunday. Usually mm. on the weekend, there's like, and, and not to uh, not to put this down at all. I mean, it's obviously important, but but in, in my life as being an analyst and, and uh, interloping marketer, or maybe it's the other way around, like, uh, you know, it's nice when events start on a Monday, even better when they start on Tuesday. But anyhow, usually what they do on the weekend is maybe like a partner or alliances summit, which which is fine. But but Oracle is just like, pow, let's let's put the head honcho out on Sunday. So everyone has to uh, come in and cover the event. It was uh, it was a reminder that I haven't gone to a Java one in a long time, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's you know, sometimes that's nice to, I guess, get things started on weekends if you want to. But yeah, it's rough when you have to fly on the Saturday. And but yeah, no, they jumped right in on all the news. Yeah, in fact, in fact, we were going to have a uh, we were going to record two episodes this week, but our mystery guest who will be revealed uh, in a, in a next episode, this mystery guest number one couldn't make it because of because of Java one. But we have we have mystery guest number two. Let's unveil the mystery. Who are you? Uh, yeah, Matt Waldron. I'm a uh, platform architect for our field organization here at Pivotal. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. You're you're uh you're one of the rare people also in the central time zone, which is always very exciting. We've got we've got to have a little herd mentality around that. Very much. So uh speaking of of uh the the Oracle Oracle Open World Java One, what uh, what have you been seeing coming out of that, Richard? Yeah, I mean as, as you mentioned, it was uh, definitely bam on the first day as tons of stuff was coming out with Larry Ellison out there doing his his Ellison magic of you know, hey, now now cloud is getting started because Oracle is here. Everybody relax now. So, you know, put out some as usual big claims that, you know, now Amazon has to look on over their shoulder because there's a legit competitor out there. They shipped some pretty good, you know, some good messaging around another generation cloud. They've gone through a couple revs of this and uh, Lydia from Gartner just a few minutes ago posted a good analysis of the new Oracle cloud and again, kind of called it a good MVP and doing a lot of the right things, but they're doing a lot of things around infrastructure as a service. They continue to invest in some of their software as a service sort of things, whatever we're calling PaaS, they're doing a lot of things with that. So they're, you know, saying they're all cloud in thousands of engineers, all working on cloud stuff, replatforming apps. So a number of announcements will link to some of them in the show notes. You know, the biggest question is going to be, is it too little too late? Is it a revenue protection sort of scenario that says if you're an Oracle customer, now this is the best place to stay with us? Or are you actually going to get net new customers out of this offering? I think that's that's what remains to be seen. Mm, I'll, I'll have to go read the Lydia thing. Is it is it behind the uh, the the moat O'Gartner or is it did she post it it's on her uh, her blog? Oh, very nice. Yeah, she bl- she blogged it. So we'll uh, we can add a link in the show notes as well to that as she's uh, always has great insight. Yeah, and and you know I think I think I think in past episodes we covered the uh, the IAS magic quadrant, which which uh, mm-hmm. I I think I think you know Lyd- Lydia does good work. Uh, hopefully that's a credible claim on my part since she doesn't really cover the stuff we're interested in. So I don't. It doesn't seem like I'm uh, I'm plowing a field with a brown nose or anything. But it <laughs> it, it does see like her her coverage is generally good and and you like or I shouldn't you say generally it is good and uh, yeah I mean it's 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 a uh, it's a tough thing to just suddenly sort of like sp- sprightly and up and get into cloud stuff. And, and of course, uh, you know, there's been a lot of, a lot of entrances and re-entrances in, into, uh, into cloud for Oracle, which is fine. You know, on, on the other hand, 
I often think that, uh, you know, I have this this weird obsession with Sun. Like, Sun had a tremendous amount of cloud stuff way back when. And there's actually a lot of uh, cloud people who were, uh, uh, I guess, immigrants from Sun stuff. So so mm-hmm. who knows? All sorts of excitement yeah, there. But, but it, does, it does remind me, uh, back at one of my previous companies that I'm now back at again, uh, yeah, I, we, I, I worked in the part of the company that was, that was trying to, uh, go, go from a small public cloud presence to a, a market leading cloud presence. And it, it, one takes a long time and is extremely difficult. So I don't know if you start the clock now or start the clock a few, uh, a few years ago or whatever, but it takes some time to build that up. But I think, I think from, from our perspective and, you know, an infrastructure layer, right? Like, I think one of the things that would be interesting would be to see, uh, you know, if, if we end up in, uh, if, if you can end up taking like something like Cloud Foundry or Pivotal Cloud Foundry and running it on mm-hmm. top of, uh, the Oracle Cloud. Which, which yeah, I think for, they, they had a lot of interesting uh, uh, mud to sling at Amazon about lock-in and things like that. So that would be a nice practice in anti-lock-in. I don't know what the opposite of lock-in is. I guess uh, lib- yeah. free-in. <laughs> Something. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, you know, especially for our listeners who are pivotal customers, I mean, we'd love to hear if, if this would be attractive to you, that we often do do partnerships, obviously, based on where our customers want us to be. And, and one value of running a PCF means... If I love the Oracle Cloud and I want to be closer to my data services, then, you know, PCF on Oracle Cloud isn't outlandish. So mm. we want to make sure we do provide some of that that uplift. But we want, to, we want to hear from customers on that. We're not just going to run out and do those things. So, no, I mean, look, I, I live up here in Seattle. The word on the street up here is that they have pulled together a very high pedigree team of people to build this cloud. This was not just, hey, let's grab some database people from internal and build a cloud. They... they recruited from the best shops up here. So, you know, hey, you got to give them a chance. They've got some great talent. They have clearly brand recognition and a a uh, attentive customer base. So, that's uh let's keep an eye on it. Now, now Matt, to put you on the spot. You you uh you you've been on the other side of the fence that is working at a at large organizations. What uh Sure. Did did you guys have what what did, what did you what is a large enterprise, you know, to summarize yourself and talking with other people like what do you guys do with Oracle in, in large organization land? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I, I have to, I guess, answer that from a historical perspective more than a current perspective. But uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm not I'm not, as, I'm not looking for any yeah. gratuitous like hating or whatever, <laughs> which which is popular with no. Oracle. But it, it's more of like I think I think a lot of people uh, or Oracle is good at like speaking about like the big grandiose stuff they do. And I think it's always interesting to think about like in their huge portfolio, all the not little, but all the the components of the things that they do and how right. how how vital they are for a lot of people's IT. Sure. So, I mean, I think, I mean, specifically from the organization I was in, um, I think by and large, it was largely their database, right? Through all of the the versions and reversions and rearchitectures of their core database product um, would have been the lion's share of what, what we leveraged our Oracle for, um, as well as for some of their Java runtime components, right? With with Web Logic. As well as some of their identity management pieces, but um, I would say that it was it was kept pretty pretty in check and pretty much limited to those use cases. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it seems like they're a uh, they're one of the one of the few systems of record companies that, that exactly uh, and 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 they're few because all of the system of record companies have been gobbling up stuff for quite some time, right? Like it's a mm-hmm. uh, that's a popular meal. Speaking of Thanksgiving, <laughs> at least from years ago, right? I mean, I'm sure. 
Kote, you remember from the years back gobbling up J.D. Edwards and Siebel yeah. and PeopleSoft and all these sort of just big things that all still, I mean, I don't remember sure. which of those you can still buy right now. I think a number of them. But those are, you know, the hallmarks of most enterprise IT shops and probably still sitting there. I, I remember yeah. running into a uh, a relative who I guess is what you would call a sales engineer. Uh, I think I think he was kind of like an upper level sales engineer for JDE, as he would say. And he had like two bookshelves. This is a long time ago. Two bookshelves full of like three ring binders of like stuff. It was like that. That was that was a fun time when you could sort of like quantify your knowledge based on three ring binders. So there's an anecdote for you. It's an important (laughs) asset. There you go. (laughs) So, so also, I don't know if it's related or if it's been going on, but I didn't realize this that uh, that Mm -hmm. that Oracle is is moving NetBeans, uh, which which is the Mm -hmm. open source uh, IDE thingy, uh, over to the Apache, the ASF, the Apache Software Foundation. Which, which this reminded me of two things. One. Eclipse and NetBeans, like back when I was an analyst and a Java developer, that was, that was, they were head to head there. I remember, I remember when it was young Kote as a developer, I used, uh, I think I used like Borland first and then there was NetBeans and then Eclipse came and that's all that was used way back then. But then I also, and, and so it seems like I, if I remember reading somewhere in, in a write up, there's like a million and a half users that they, uh, they, they say they have, which sounds great. And uh, but I remember one time I was in an Eclipse Con way back when when Sun was independent, and there was like a, a rival little NetBeans evening with a couple presentations like across the street, you know, the uh, the uh, the Santa Clara Convention Center, and then mm-hmm. behind it there's like some building that's named something really funny, like behind the Hyatt there. So the person <laughs> had rented out the lobby of that other building, and there was a Marilyn Monroe impersonator who was like getting people to come over and enjoy like little little weenies and spinach and, and see presentations on NetBeans. I, I I should drag that picture up. I think I even got a picture with her. Clearly your new uh your new profile picture on Twitter. That's right. So if if people wonder what analysts do, I've just told you. <laughs> Peek behind the curtain. Co- cocktail weenies, PowerPoint, and Marilyn Monroe impersonators. Man, that is your autobiography title. <laughs> Uh, anyhow, I, I think I think it. it uh, yeah, that, that'll that'll be. You know, I I think it's it's in recent years. Like I used to think of like the ASF as mostly infrastructure sort of software, mm. but they've they've been accepting a lot of like. Don't they have open office there too? They've been accepting a lot of like front end centric things. Yeah, there's definitely a handful of things. I you know for some reason dragging this back to pivotal. There uh, we we posted an interesting blog post this week on our approach to open source and what do you open source and what do you keep as IP and how do you manage all that. So really interesting to see big companies as they continue to donate or, or give things to open source. You wonder what goes on behind the scenes on those discussions. I thought it was a cool post by us. It was our legal team talking about why open source is awesome. But, you know, how did these big companies make these decisions now? It's, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I was just I was just noting that uh, in Twitter the other day. And, and because it's true that I enc- I've encountered a lot of, I guess you could call it open source objections. I don't know if they're like speed humps or actual objections. Mm-hmm. But uh, I need to sit down and like sort through that. I'm sure there's I'm sure there's some fun charts I can pull together that are basically like, dude, open source is okay. Don't freak out. But it is mm-hmm. it is uh, something that I notice coming up a lot in the uh, organizations that that we go talk with. Interesting. So uh, so also, I, I think I think you read up more on this than I did. It it, it looks like the uh, Java E8 is is delayed a little while. 
little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's also part of Java 1, as they're talking about that and last week. It's kind of officially talked about that the goal is, you know, JE8 by the end of 2017. And then the goal would be EE9 uh, about a year later, which may be optimistic, given that that eights slipped a bit. But, you know, they're, they're trying to do more cloud native stuff. Like they're going to talk more about it this week at at the Java conference. And, you know, it's just it becomes tricky as you have these big stewards of things and, and Oracle figuring out what to do with Java. You know, the article we linked to on this, of course, I'm, I'm happy to see someone comment saying that, hey, Spring Boot and Cloud Foundry is the best way of building cloud apps in Java. I think we agree that it's great to see, you know, JEE 8 and 9 or 9 kind of tracking the Spring Framework 5, which we're already about to ship. So, you know, we're trying to stay ahead of the game for people doing Java microservices to Spring being a, being a premier choice. You know, on the JEE side, I think it's been frustrating for the community to see where is this going. But I guess credit to Oracle to try to, to reinvest here and, and get a hard concrete plan forward. But the community gets kind of stuck in this sit and wait period. Of what am I supposed to do in the meantime? We're talking, mm. you know, 16 months out yeah. until another version and a couple years until I get something that has modern microservices and this, the basic things you already have in spring today. No, oh, and, and speaking of young me, I mean, this this made me think of two things. One, uh, I think as far as I can remember, not and, and as far back, I should say, not as as comprehensively, as far back as I as I can remember, uh, I think the Java community has followed the uh, the epigraph at the beginning of the mythical man month, which is if good cooking takes time, it's you know, if you're made to wait, it's it's to ensure that the food is good. I messed that up. But it's basically like, you know, hey, if you want something that tastes good, you need to wait until I cook it and stop complaining. Mm-hmm. Right. Like <laughs> if you want if you want something quick, I can make you a fried egg champ. But it, it also like it, it was making me reflect. And, and this, of course, is like, you know, uh, seems like really biased. But man, the, the spring framework has had like an amazing run of being like a huge source of innovation in the Java world. Like I, even back when uh, when I was still a developer, I remember a lot of the conversations we would have is like, oh, why don't they just do this? And then, you know, annotations were added and all these. I mean, I don't pay attention to Java anymore, but it seems like there's a lot of uh, interesting innovation that you can put into practice that shows up in in spring. And I'm sure many other places like I remember when Java had this uh, existential crisis about Ruby for a long time. And then it would, you know. That's an interesting historic example of like the Java community not freaking out about, I wouldn't call it a flash in a pan. It's more like a long cooking thick chicken breast in a pan, but eventually it gets removed and you're left with the pan. So you got to live with yourself, but they didn't get, they didn't get too obsessed with, uh, with, you know, weighing around anyways. Yeah. I mean, you, the the you long story if, is interesting. Yeah. I mean, if spring hadn't made a big change with spring boot and the like a couple of years back, I mean, you wonder if there's a thesis that Java would be seriously on the decline if boot hadn't goosed it, because all of a sudden now you are able to do things that don't feel like, hey, I'm being left behind by people doing things in .NET or Node or Go or whatever languages or people are kind of gravitating to is that all of a sudden Java started to get some of these constructs, whether it's coming up with reactive programming and all the things that boot gives you about, look, I can with eight lines of code, turn up a web server because it's all embedded in the jar. Mm. I mean, I... I'm a .NET node person, and when I joined Pivotal, I committed to learning Spring and Boot, and you know, it, it's really pretty, pretty great stuff. And what we've been doing with Spring Cloud, again, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, this is really cutting edge stuff that's now baked into a Java experience. If that stuff hadn't come along, you really wonder if if we'd be talking about, well, I guess Java's dead, is it? But instead, you're seeing Boot being downloaded, you know, 
millions and millions of times per month. It just, I, I think we've done a good service. Hopefully then JEE also kind of gives people some confidence that there's other things you can do with Java besides Spring. But hopefully we uh, can take some credit for keeping Java in the spotlight. So so then let, let, me, let me ask you again, Matt. When you go out, including your, when you talk to yourself, which, you know, there's not a sand of insanity. It's fine. You're just thinking, sure. talking to yourself. Yep. Like, and you talk with like, like enterprise architect types and other kind of people who are looking at the like long-term uh, stability of their technology choices. Mm-hmm. Are they, do they have like a huge alignment towards like, like stock Java EE or are they interested in just like whatever works? So how do, how are people balancing that out? Sure. So, I mean, I guess from what I've seen, I mean, there's a huge, a huge embrace of, of not just, you know, J2EE, but, but Spring overall, right? I think for many of the reasons that I think Pivotal, you know, talks about, right? Just like removing a lot of that undifferentiated, you know, boilerplate code that, that I think people, you know, don't have the time or the patience to write. I mean, I think Spring is a great option there. Um and I would say that whether it's you know Spring with Java or .NET, I, I see a lot of enterprises still gravitating around those two, those two languages and those two frameworks. I mean, just because of you know the longevity that they've had and the stability that they've had, um, and that doesn't mean they're not dabbling with some of the other things that that you know you and Richard just mentioned. But I still see a ton of momentum and a ton of excitement around .NET and Spring. Mm. Well, well, speaking of excitement, just just to close out mm. before we get to uh, this part, so. <laughs> I think I think finally, Richard. We both work in marketing. Our marketing mm-hmm. job is basically going to be over, and over in the sense of like we will be able to accomplish all our hopes and dreams because there's no longer a 140 character limit in Twitter. Now, this is slight slight technicality. I think there's a a character limit, but when you link to other things, when you put URLs in there, including images, that doesn't count for it. So what this means now, everyone knows. There's two things that everyone on the internet knows. One. Your video can never be longer than three seconds. That's why there's only one listener to this podcast, which is much longer than three seconds. So you got to have short form uh, multimedia, Mm -hmm. as we used to call it. Two, you got to add an image to a tweet or no one will ever look at it. So now now we can have maximum messaging and positioning in Twitter, right? And we can add images. No problem. I think I think uh, next next year it's going to be it's going to be done where we'll uh, we'll all be able to buy like. English estates with all the excess money that we'll make because we'll be so successful with marketing. Oh, so much time wasted now that I can do things like embedding GIFs and uh, videos and polls mm-hmm. in, oh, uh, in polls. my 140 characters. Right, all that's baked in. So, I mean, look, every tweet of mine will now have like a still photo of a bowl of fruit just because it can fit <laughs> and it's fine. It doesn't matter anymore. So that's a, but it's a good deal. I mean, again, there's always these weird religious arguments about, no, it just has to hold this 140 characters and other people who want you to write, you know, manifestos and no limits and, you know, at the end of the day, I, I like the the forced brevity of tools like this. Twitter is a big part of my day to day experience in marketing and just learning things and meeting new people. So I like that they evolve it. I don't think they'll ever please remotely everybody, but this feels like a good advance. Yeah, I, I remember first reading about this in the summer and thinking if they if they did extend, like if they really made it like you could do any length you want, kind of like a Facebook post, then uh, then then that would be kind of weird. But like I like the idea of basically like you can have attachments essentially to your to your tweets so so that makes sense that'll be fun because it is nice to like attach images there's there's a weird corner case i always encounter which is let's see if you want to quote someone else's tweet you can't put an image Mm -hmm. in it which which is always annoying right 
I know, especially when you want to include a funny. Yeah, I want to throw a weird meme on it, and I can't do it. So exactly, um, exactly. Basic- there's a couple other things. Go ahead. Still coming that they are adding the uh, you know Kote. You probably know the quirk of doing the dot at symbol to try to actually start a tweet with a person's name, but actually make sure everyone can see it. They're doing away with that in the coming months, mm. and then some of these other things like hey, any any other mentions don't count against your limit because you've probably been in these chats where. 72 people get involved and you have six characters left to add any oh. any text because there's no room left. So yeah. those things will. That, this is this is a good point. A lot of people at the end of those those big Twitter conversations, which can I add those drive me crazy. I hate those. They 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 will they will find the exit door by saying I cannot have this conversation in 140 characters. <laughs> or or even, you know, the characters allowed by all, you know, I don't have enough characters. Now you can say like, "Bro, because it's always, you know, some person, I guess. You've got enough characters. Make the argument. Or you lose. And I think, I think right. that's, that's, how, that's how stuff works in Twitter, if I remember. It's very civil discourse. It's all hot takes. <clears throat> so speaking of hot takes, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what, why I segued with that, but hot takes is funny. I, you know, I like to think we should do warm takes. Are there, are there like ice cold takes? I guess that's... Uh, that's uh, if you're doing quarterly publishing of a magazine. Someone must still no, do that. No, that's like AWS is super is really uh, going to take off. That's a super cold take. It's <laughs> like, good lord, that's a six year old take. That's that's right. Open source is a trustworthy technology to use. <laughs> a super cold take. Super cold glacier. Anyhow, welcome back, Matt. You've been here a little while now. Now it's your segment. Why don't you Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of your background, like beyond beyond being a, a platform architect and living in the central time zone, uh, as as right. we've we've established. Like, <laughs> yeah. what sure. uh, what what would you say like is is one of your areas of interest at the moment? Like, what what do you what do you what are you working on around here? Yeah, sure. So I guess I'd I'd answer by saying that I I came to Pivotal really just to explore the whole area of um, you know structured cloud native slash platform as a service just in depth because you know I think Pivotal's been doing that for a long time and has a lot of really compelling technology in that space. Um, and that was interesting to me because I had been you know spending probably the better part of the last two and a half years at a large Fortune 50 company uh, building my own platform, right? So not leveraging Cloud Foundry or any of the great work that's out there from any number of other companies, but really trying to engineer that whole that whole uh, set of capabilities um, myself with the team that I was leading at my last company. And and so let, let's let's talk about the the idea of uh, building your own platform a little bit. I, I was actually talking with one of my coworkers about about this yesterday. How. Uh, when, well, on, on the team that I'm on, where we go out to conferences and we traipse about and talk with people, always oh, there's a lot of traipsing. Like a, a lot of what you encounter are are exactly that: people who build their own platforms. And and first of all, sure. like like what I, I mean, people who've listened to this podcast kind of have a notion of what a platform is. But like, what is it? What does it look like when when you're building your own platform? Like, what are the components you're putting together? And like, what are you what are you doing? Like, I, I assume you're not sure. writing a file system, for example. But like, <laughs> right and yeah, so I mean, I guess you know my take on it, I think, is probably a little bit broader and um, more comprehensive than I think maybe a lot of people go after. But for me, a platform is um, you know something that I embarked on in order to provide you know a rich set of capabilities for 
more or less managing the full life cycle of not just applications that I was required to deploy, but also all of the you know application dependencies, infrastructure, you know, databases, middleware, runtime, those sorts of things. But be able to do that in a, a highly consistent, highly automated, highly predictable way um, to manage all those things through their entire life cycle. So to me, that to me, that's what what I would call a platform. Um, yeah, you you have 30, a uh, thirty words or less, right? You, you have a uh, you you. There's like a little interview post uh, that we have on the blog, and if I remember, there's you have a a diagram in there of like all yep. the different things that you need the uh, the layers. I need. Sure. I keep forgetting to steal that for my stuff somewhere, but <laughs> but I, I I think I think it's a yeah. good it's a good overview of like here's here's all the stuff that you need. Right, right, and you know I I try to break that down into you know various what I call uh, capability domains. Um, and honestly, I think if you look at it, it represents you know all the different teams and silos of work that have kind of traditionally existed within you know infrastructure and operations and application teams. But taking that to this idea of having an automated platform for delivering you know things like infrastructure, things like all the you know operations and metrics and reporting tooling that you might need, all of the tooling you need to have like a very effective continuous integration and continuous delivery process in place, as well as you know a lot of you know what I called the the application dependencies, which are the things like application runtimes, integration technologies, database technologies, et cetera. And then kind of layered around all those things would be all of the different things that you need to keep all of those pieces um, secure throughout throughout their life cycle. So, so when, when you're like, like in your experience and talking with people, like who, uh, so I, I mean, the whole, the whole thing of a platform initiative is, is probably like at least a year long initiative from like, you know, uh, let's say we come, we come back from, uh, the, the holiday vacation. It's like, what would it be like January 5th or 9th, depending on the calendar. And it's like, Hey, we should have a platform. Well, first I need to find time on everyone's calendar. And I got to schedule this out. And, and then, you know, maybe a year later, you're like, boom, we got a platform. But like who, mm-hmm. like what's, what's like the core team of people who are doing that? Like, is it, is it like a business side person or like is it a, b- a bottoms up thing or architects or like what, what drives this platform project? Sure. I mean, I think it can be driven in a couple of different ways. Um, I think in my particular scenario, it was more of a business um, led initiative. Um, I think the the, re- the main reason that we brought our platform into existence was to help migrate um, a bunch of workloads for doing e-commerce and mobile and and like API type services um, <clears throat> from kind of traditional managed you know outsourced data center type hosting mm. to running on a public cloud, right? And so in order to effectively you know take over all of those, you know, operations, deployment, support, security, all of those sorts of capabilities. And to do that in a way that um, where we would not get locked into a particular cloud provider, it basically necessitated creating all of these different platform capabilities um, in order to effectively move those workloads and be able to manage them in a meaningful way at scale, Mm. you know, throughout their life cycle. So so, so do you you think, just to interject there, do you think... uh, Yeah. Do you think a common genesis, if you will, which makes me think about like Spock and a bunch of white robes, but whatever. Do you think, sure. do you think a common genesis <laughs> is like uh, we're going, we're cloudizing everything? Like, is that a thing that kicks people off to, to think about a platform? 
Uh, you know, I think, I, I don't know if it's like the thing, you know, that was definitely the scenario in my case, right? Where we were trying to move these applications, we were trying to move them into more of a, you know, loosely coupled microservices type architecture. But I think honestly, what I see most of the time is not that scenario. Um, I think a lot of times what I'm seeing is almost like a grassroots movement within, um, you know, operations or infrastructure, and then occasionally sometimes within development, right, where they're trying to introduce, you know, honestly, a lot of the, the patterns and approaches and architectures that, that I think Pivotal embraces and um, tries to enable within organizations, they're very slowly like trying to enable those sorts of things as well. And I think that's where they stumble across things like, you know, infrastructure as code and all the tools that are out there to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, continuous integration and all the orchestration engines that are out there to do that. And then I think now, I think what what a lot of those same teams are seeing is, oh, well, I think if I add containers and a container scheduler to that, well, that 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 <clears throat> that gets to you know more of these outcomes and more of the kind of you know new school microservices automated CI approaches that I think a lot of companies are trying to embrace. I mean, when you're looking at some of the things you described there, and some of it coming from kind of top down, like business imperatives, hey, we want to go faster, right. we want to have no lock in, things like that. But then the grassroots right. of, gosh, CD and CI are awesome. How come everything's broken? And you want to fix right. it both ways. So you're seeing that kind of both pressure on both directions. Do you think if you were, if a company's looking at cloud first and saying, look, let's just run this on Azure, AWS, Google, whatever, yeah. do they have the same feeling of trying to build everything from scratch versus using as a service components? Or does some of this come from wanting to have more control or keep it on premises? Sure. Where do you think you go into that extreme DIY where you're actually setting up your own load balancers and, and SANS and, th- and things like that? Do you, act, yeah. you know, what, what takes you to that extreme? Um, you know, I think honestly, a lot of that has to do with you know the culture of whatever organization you might be operating in. Um, I think there's organizations that have you know very traditionally had a buy or kind of an embrace and extend sort of mentality, um, or like a let's buy but then customize. Sure. Um, but I think there's a lot of organizations that either started from an opposite you know position where um, you know call it an engineering culture, call it a maker culture, call it whatever you want, but are maybe at the opposite extreme. Mm-hmm. And then I think you've got a bunch of companies that maybe traditionally were, you know, more in the let's buy everything, you know, IT isn't differentiating, let's maybe, you know, use a lot of third-party solutions and and maybe even outsource a bunch of technology that have seen, you know, now that, you know, software is such an incredibly um, important component of, of, I guess, what you would call like competitive advantage, that they're trying to move back into maybe more of the middle where they're doing a lot of this engineering in order to, you know, create more of an engineering culture in order to maybe encourage um, more engineering to happen within their companies, right? So sure. I guess I wouldn't say that there's any any one paradigm. I think it just all depends on, you know, the culture of the company and where they're starting from. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, do you see, there was a, an interesting tweet last night uh, I, I saw from actually Lydia, funny enough, from uh, Gardner. Mm-hmm. It, it was uh, recounting a bank that had gone through kind of, this is the, the new modern tech stack they built to run their the bank technology and interesting post sure. really cool stuff it was exactly the things you've described here in terms of the platform components and someone mm-hmm. i respected this morning had, had commented on it saying this feels like kind of like a premature optimization so how do you when you were even doing this yourself and i mean did you have sure. this pretty schematic all those things you were going to have to do or does it grow yeah. organically as you come up with more needs i mean can you accidentally plan way too much up front without knowing what you're doing 
<laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I think you absolutely can. Um, and I would say that I was more of the latter, right? Where I actually did spend probably the better part of. I mean, this is going to sound obnoxious, and it probably is, but the better part of a year, you mm-hmm. know, strategizing, architecting, come up, you know, coming up with what I thought was, you know, probably like the perfect, you know, reference architecture or capability mm-hmm. architecture for all the things that I felt that we were going to need to effectively manage, you know, a, a pretty significant e-commerce site running on public cloud, right? Sure. And so I did have the schematic, but I think I think that probably most people don't start from there. <laughs> Honestly, they probably don't have the luxury of that kind of time on their, their hands in order to invest in, in designing something like that up front. And so I do think they probably get more into the smaller iterations where, you know, maybe you're embracing a, you know, container technology such as Docker, right? And it's, you know, giving you a lot of those quick wins where, you know, you're able to get your code into into production maybe a little bit more quickly with a little bit more consistency. But then, you know, a lot of the a lot of the things that, you know, I talk about are, okay, well, what happens after that as part of, you know, running in production on day two, right? Which is, I think, where a lot of the other components start to come into play. Yeah, that, that's something um, from the, uh, the, the interview you had that, uh, I don't know. I I don't think I thought about it in that much detail when it comes to building your own platform. Like usually the quip is like you know the quip mm-hmm. that I and other people use is like, you know, now you have two problems. You have you have like the uh, the platform you have to maintain and also the application that mm-hmm. you want to put on top of it. So instead of one, you have two, which you know sounds funny. Um, but the the detail on that is that um to the to the quippiness of that, like you do have a product that requires all of its own process and product management and ongoing work, right? Like you don't, right. you can't really like just uh, throw up a wiki page and hope that it gets maintained. Like it's, it's, right. it's as real a product, if not realer as the application you're going to build on top of it. Cause it'll be supporting multiple applications. So it's almost a, uh, a complete parallel process that you have to do. Now, I, I think, I think the pushback that a lot of people would give is no, it's not. <laughs> that that like yeah that, that that like the the uh the application team or whatever can right. can like take care of it but i mean i mean and and to that end can can you kind of like quantify i mean is it like is it like a doubling of resources that you need or like what there there, there must be some part some point where like if if you have one application and one team or maybe and they have two applications like it seems like there there are cases because we see this demonstrated where you can build your own platform, but there seems to be a certain like scale that you achieve, or where you don't have the staff for it, where it's not possible. So, you know, we've been having this ongoing discussion about ROI stuff, which as 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 people who read all the stuff I do knows is like this albatross on my back. But like it seems like it seems like that's where a lot of the cases is like how much do we need to spend resource wise on building our own platform versus not doing it. And so how do you like quantify what that effort is? It's like longest question ever there. Yeah. I mean, no, no, no. And I, 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 I struggle with that same albatross, honestly, because I do think, you know, when you're getting started, I think that the, the, the challenge or the problem of like doing this whole platform thing, I think on the surface looks really small. Right. And I think that's why it's really attractive you know, individual development teams, individual developers to take on some of the burden of managing that, right? Because um, there's just a, a level of scale that they ha- haven't reached yet. But I think what I would say is that even even if you're a single team or a small development team and you're, you're currently handling all these platform tasks, like at some point, you know, all of the same 
life cycle and management and product management and all these things, um, I think eventually come come home to roost, right? Because if you're going to continue to justify having a platform at all, like in some sense, it has to be competitive with what other platforms are doing, right? Because otherwise, why would you have your own platform, right? So it's one, one thing to get a platform built once. I think it's another thing to keep it going because I think by its very nature, if if you're going to continue to justify having a platform, like it has to be, you know, it has to achieve some level of feature parity um, and stability and and serviceability as you might find with some of the more commercial offerings. Mm. And so I think that's where you get into um, not just deploying the platform the first time, right? Like not just standing up Kubernetes or, or whatever you're using, but actually, okay, so if I'm going to continue to be competitive, if I'm going to continue to have this platform, it's got to do more over time, right? So then you're into, you know, planning for, you know, what are the new features I need? What what new releases do I need to upgrade to? What are all the patches I need to do? Um, mm-hmm. How do I introduce you know changes to my various platform components without causing a lot of disruption, right? And so that starts to look like, well, now I'm doing things like, uh, it's not a great analogy, but test-driven development for my platform components and doing things like continuous integration for my platform components. And so I think over time, especially as you start to have more and more consumers, the 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 expectation and the, and the demand on that platform team goes up um, mm. in a lot of the ways that I just that I just mentioned, right? And as you continue to grow the platform and it continues to have more capabilities and more moving pieces, um, that starts to look like a big snowball running down a pretty big hill. Right. So you've kind of become our. Uh I think our accidental closer when it comes into deals, it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh God, this is a big ball of mud customer right. who just has this platform that they know and love or they're clinging to. And, and we really want to talk to them about Pivotal Cloud Foundry and platform. So if we're right. talking details, when you go talk to a customer, sure. how do you help them decide whether to either keep going or start with a role their own or to right. target, let's say, Pivotal Cloud Foundry? And mm-hmm. as kind of the second part of that, what are those things in the platform that you talk about that say, these are things you don't want to worry about. Sure. So that's yeah. Let me. Uh, <laughs> there's a few questions in there. I think so. Maybe I'll I'll start at the beginning and then maybe just help guide me through a little bit. Um, I think. I mean, by and large, what I try to talk to people about, especially you know large companies, because honestly, some of these problems are kind of like big company problems more so than small company problems. Um, but that if you're really going to grow a platform and have it be something that's not just providing service for you know one team or two teams, but for your entire enterprise, um, then there's a certain you know scale and size and maturity that that platform has to have. And so what I end up doing is walking them through um, basically the journey that I went on over that two and a half year time period from not having a platform to having a fairly feature-complete comprehensive platform that, that in a lot of ways um, had a lot of the same features and functionality that, that Cloud Foundry has. Um, and so I walked them through like all of the resource, actually even before the resource, just, just walking them through things like the time frame and how it actually took you know, close to two years to get to a feature-complete platform. Um, I also walked them through all of the things that they might not be thinking about from an overall capability perspective, right? Such because as? I think, well, you know, I think a lot of people like very quickly gravitate towards, hey, I'm going to build a Docker container on my laptop, and then I'm just going to deploy that to a Kubernetes or other scheduler in production, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily think about, you know, how I continue to manage the quality 
of those artifacts that I'm pushing, how do I continue to, you know, upgrade them, patch them, maintain them? How do I provide for, you know, seamless deployments of those artifacts? How do I do monitoring? How do I do reporting? How do I manage, um, particularly in the case of like public cloud deployments, how do I manage my cost on an ongoing basis so that I don't have just you know over deployment of of these 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 containerized or or virtualized resources um walk them through all the security things and just walk them through all these components and then talk about you know each one of these components has a life cycle right like if you're really going to have this thing survive and scale and be sustainable over time like you can't just be thinking about how do i deploy it it's how do I actually manage it from from cradle to grave, right? And I think, I think that starts to open people's eyes quite a bit. Um, and so that's just kind of from a capability perspective. I also mm-hmm. walk them through, you know, just basically what what I did from a resourcing perspective, right? So if you take all of these different capabilities, um, well, ultimately they need to map back to a set of engineers, right? And so, at least in the way that I tackled the problem, I actually stood up uh, product teams around each one of the capability domains that, that, that factored into that overall platform. So I had a product team for you know, the automated delivery of infrastructure. I had a product team for all of the automated codified ways that we would do things like monitoring and instrumentation. Um, a team around continuous delivery, a team around middleware, a team around data, and a team around security, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like if you're going to manage things for an enterprise at scale throughout their life cycle, it, just, it, it takes a lot of people, right? And so I end up showing them that, hey, after I was all said and done, like I had this amazing platform and it was, you know, absolutely the most, the most rewarding, most um, fun, most intense period of my career. But at the end of it, I had this platform um, that was kind of going to be an ongoing concern for the company. I had a team of, you know, about 55 engineers that was having to maintain it. Um, and if you put those two things together, there's, there's a pretty hefty price tag that you end up associating with that effort. And so the question then then ends up being like, hey, if you've got, you know, in my case, it was, you know, around between seven and eight million dollars of payroll that I was spending to engineer and keep the lights on for this platform. Right. And if you've got that kind of money to invest in talent and engineering, mm-hmm. like, do you want to be doing that for a platform or do you want to be doing that for your core business? Mm. Right. And so now you have I think problems. those are. Right. So those <laughs> right. So those are the two things, right? Yeah. So well, I think you've got three problems, right? You've got these two ongoing <laughs> concerns, right? So you've got the the platform problem that you're trying to solve and the and the overall business problems you're trying to solve. And the third problem is that, you know, you're robbing you're robbing the business to to run this platform in a sense, right? And so it's it's illuminating all of those different things and then I think also illuminating that um, you know, when I started there, there weren't comprehensive solutions out there, you know, like Cloud Foundry or, or a number of our competitors. So like building a platform was something we almost had to do at that point in time. Mm-hmm. But then there's much more, there's much more viable options out there where you can remove a lot of that, you know, undifferentiated engineering that my team had to do so that you don't have to be incurring that, that cost or those, those delays, um, yeah, I, I mean that's 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 yeah. one of the the sort of like uh, theoretic footnotes or or whatever that I have in the in this discussion always is that uh, you one reads a lot about people who have built their own platforms because you know if if you if you reverse out the math I don't know what I said there but it, but if you sort of walk back from presenting now it probably means like two to three years ago they started out doing this and and at the time the the uh, 
I don't know what the new phrase for off the shelf is, but the off the internet, like options were not as viable as they are nowadays. So like right. it would make sense that people had to build things just as you were explaining. But nowadays, uh, if you weren't in that little, that little vanguard, there's a lot of other options that you have. So I, I had, I, I don't know, I don't know if Richard has more, but I had just one more, one more question, which is, yeah. um, you know, you know, in, in, in the breadth of, of all the things you need to support, one thing that I think is interestingly different about, uh, about, the the platform as a service or the platform area nowadays is a much tighter integration with with continuous integration and continuous de- delivery like all of those pipelines which you mentioned many times right like i think right i think i think aside from the buy everything from one vendor pitches that you would see in the 2000s like people tended to keep those things separate and so so i wonder like how how integrated do you think your your ci cd stuff is into your platform consideration like how how much are those things tied together or should they um, tie together well i think i think you absolutely need to have a platform that supports whatever you're trying to do from a ci cd perspective right so i i think there has to be um you know, a really great integration between, you know, the practices and the approaches that you're trying to use to enable your software development organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Those have to be enabled and and present within your platform as well. Right. And, and the way, and honestly, that was one of the big, one of the bigger, or one of the many kind of guiding principles that, that we took when building that platform was that we wanted to be able to continuously integrate and deliver all of our platform capabilities so that we could really not, so that not only could we you know, reap all the benefits of you know, better quality and faster time to market and all of those good things that we always talk about with CI, but so that we could also really intimately um, understand and identify and empathize with the developers who ultimately were going to be consuming mm, right. our platform. Right. Right. So that so mm. that we could provide a very clear link between um, the practices that that we're trying to enable because we're we're actually using those practices too. Yeah, no, no that's interesting. I mean I'm I I I, I picked up on that one little part and wanted to like pull on that string because with yeah. uh, there's been several several organizations I've spoken with recently who spend a lot of time perfecting their pipeline, which, mm. which makes sense, right? Like, like there's a lot of, of, uh, I mean, that's the software you're building. <laughs> it's, it's, it's your workbench right. in, in some way. And, and I, I've been curious to like, see, uh, you know, sometimes I encounter people who like, you, they give you an overview of what they're doing and it's sort of like gold plating to some extent, or maybe silver plating. But, <laughs> but it, I think, I think over the next few years, that'll be, you know, the CICD spot will be an interesting area to look at. In the same way that, as we've been talking about, it's generally a good idea to get a platform instead of build one. I wonder how much of like the pipeline process, if you will, not the actual tools itself, but the actual kind of process that you do will be sort of people adopting conventions that are out there rather than coming up with their own things. Yeah, I mean, I think that gets gets back to like, where is value actually added, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think probably the value is added in building you know, a very super custom unique pipeline, like the, like the value is probably added in how, how good are your tests, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I, I think it, it's kind of like, you know, we talk about these value line conversations at Pivotal a lot. And I think you can have value line conversations, you know, with, within platform, within development, within, within CI and CD. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right on with the silver plating comment. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, a couple last things for you. So sure. When you do talk about this, I mean, whether it's the pipeline or others, when you talk about 
to platform builders, what are the PCF features that click the most? Like, where do you see light bulb moments when you're talking to people who have been building platforms or yeah. are th thinking of going down that journey? Are there a couple things that when you show X or talk about Y that they go, sheesh, I don't want to have to do that myself. Like, <laughs> are there some of those? Uh, yeah, I think, I think definitely, right? And I think a lot of them are... Uh, I think what I would describe as all the infrastructure is code that you no longer have to write, <laughs> right? Which which kind of cuts both ways, right? Because it is a lot of work, you know, whether you're using Chef or Puppet or any of the other tools that are out there, it's a lot of work to write and maintain and continue to grow like your base of infrastructure code. Um, and it's also really hard to coerce the organization into using, you know, a set of canonical artifacts around infrastructure code. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the things that I think Pivot, that the Cloud Foundry product makes really easy in both just an overall execution perspective, like in like the actual getting the, the automated config managed, you know, um, infrastructure built out, but then also from a governance perspective where it's, it's much easier to, to manage the, the automation and, and the structure within the platform than it is through, you know, GitHub repositories that might be getting cloned and forked all over the place. So mm -hmm. I think that's, that's a big piece, you know, whether you're talking about the virtualized infrastructure management we do with Bosch or with the actual um, container build and deploy process that we do with our build packs and Elastic Runtime. I think those are two things where like, like all that effort that, that you may be spending right now is just gone, right? So that you can focus on some of the more higher value things like you know, helping, helping customers actually you know, re-architect their applications, effectively use the platform, um, getting into things like performance and availability, mm -hmm. some of those things instead of you know, mucking around trying to perfect the perfect chef cookbook. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. So I want to close with uh, one of my favorite hot takes from the last few months is something you wrote in an internal oh, chat, and I saw okay. you write it into another paper, so yeah. clearly you like the line. But okay. So what you said was, I'll read verbatim, the, uh, the overempowered full-stack developer is an overcorrection created as a necessary response to the inefficient processes and poor outcomes created by yesterday's suboptimal ops teams. So I think that is a bold and interesting thesis that to, sure. to some extent, this idea of a full-stack engineer is not a desired end state. Instead, sure. it's the kind of messy middle we're in as, as a result, right. as you say, because ops just, there wasn't the right relationship between dev and right. ops. So you know, I want to give you a minute to yeah. maybe uh, explain that, but then also, what do you think is the desired end state? If full stack engineer is an overcorrection, what what right. is the right place to end up? Yeah, so, and I know that's kind of a provocative, <laughs> bold statement, um, I but I, I think just coming coming from my background, I there for quite a while we we really did embrace and try to propagate this whole idea of the full stack engineer, right? Like whether that's in um, and or operations and infrastructure or in development. Um, and I think what we saw was, and I'll just focus on development for, for, for a second, is that during the era in which we didn't have API-driven infrastructure, right? Like we didn't have true infrastructure as a service. We didn't have um, platforms that provided the services that we really needed, Um and expose them in a way that was easily consumable in a self-service way to developers, I think that the overcorrection to that was this idea that development teams, along with actually writing kind of like the, 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 
the added the value added business functionality that they have within their applications, mm-hmm. we're also spending a ton of time doing things like writing chef cookbooks and using you know uh, puppet or chef or whatever to automate the deployment of not only their application but also all of its dependencies and infrastructure. And I just saw. Um, that was a very, very exciting, I think, I think time that we were in, and I absolutely helped to support that and drive that forward. Um, and the whole idea of really empowering um, developers and engineers to, to own their whole stack. But I think in hindsight, you know, having come through this platform experience and, and now with a lot of what I'm seeing at, at Pivotal customers, I think I would say it's an overcorrection because ideally you wouldn't have developers focusing on things that aren't applications, Right, you would have them focusing their time there, and instead having a very rich, um, feature complete set of capabilities being provided to them in a way that's super easy to consume. Right, so that they don't even have to worry about those things. Those things are present um, and available as as much as like turning on your water faucet or picking up the phone and hearing a dial tone. Right. right. So I think that's that's really what I'm talking about is that there was a gap between let's just say like enterprise. Um, infrastructure 1.0 and the developers that forced them into this model of having to do everything themselves because they weren't getting what they needed. I think with you know everything that we've seen with cloud and with cloud native platforms and those sorts of, those 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 approaches that have developed over the last couple of years, I don't think for most people it's probably necessary to engineer the full stack anymore. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean this is this is the benefit and. Uh... What's the opposite of a benefit? Problem with developers is is uh, they code their way out of any problem. So if, <laughs> right, and and you know I I remember uh, uh, to speak fondly of myself, like quipping that I think I think many advances in IT are based on the fact that someone didn't give the developers the credentials, right? Like so the 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 server admins or the security people or whoever, are like nope. You, you can't like deploy VMs or whatever. And so boom, right. you write your own platform, which is, right. it just, it's just an example of people coding their way out of a problem. And, and, you know, also, uh, before we wrap up, I should add, if you really want to be a platform developer, we're hiring. You should come work for us. And, and <laughs> that's, where you can, that's you can, you can be building platforms, right? People who actually need to build platforms. Exactly. There's lots yeah. of people who are hiring. If, if what you want to do is be more of a, uh, I wouldn't say an uppercase systems programmer, like work on uh, like hardware and stuff. But if you want to work on platforms, there's many options out there. So, uh, so hey, thanks for being a guest. It was it was uh, yeah, good. Thanks good for times. having me. So, if people want to uh, follow on with you and see if you have any uh, whatever the temperature of the take may be, see see what sure. else is going on. What what should they what should they do? You got Twitter or a blog or what, what's what's your uh, what's your thing? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm out there on Twitter at Matt Walburn. Mm. So pretty simple. First name, last name. Uh, I'm out there. Well, there you go. So you can you can look that up. Well, as always, this has been Pivotal Conversations. If you want to look up the show notes, you can go to pivotal.io slash podcast. And we're in SoundCloud as well. That's our, our not-so-secret backend. You can go to soundcloud.com slash Pivotal Conversations. And uh, if, if, if you like this podcast and, and you want to help out, in a way that costs nothing. It's good to subscribe to the feed. Just put that in your old uh, your old podcast listener. I use Overcast myself, but I understand there are, are, are alternatives out there. Also, it'd be great if you go into the iTunes store and uh, leave a comment. And it's even better if you tell your friends that they should uh, listen to this so, so we can get a broader reach for all of our, uh, all of our delightful nonsensicalness, as, as I like to think of it. And with that, uh, we'll see everyone next time.
Bye-bye.